Welcome to Gray Zone Radio. I'm your host, Max Blumenthal, the editor of thegrayzone.com. Today, we're going to hear some highlights from a rally that has stirred controversy while breathing new life into the moribund anti-war movement. It was called Rage Against the War Machine, and it was held at the base of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. this February 19th. Planned by the People's Party, a left-wing formation, and the right-leaning Libertarian Party, the rally aimed to unite Americans from across the political spectrum around a series of demands that focused on defunding the Ukraine proxy war that threatens to engulf the world in nuclear confrontation. The rally's untraditional and cross-partisan coalition has come in for attacks from members of professional left activist groups like the Answer Coalition and the World Socialist website, which denounced any alliance against the war that includes libertarians. Neocon Iraq War cheerleader Bill Kristol has joined the attacks alongside liberal MSNBC host and Russiagate conspiracist Rachel Maddow, who had this to say about Rage Against the War Machine. I mean truly random rally on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. A rally in support of Russia, I guess, with all given all the Russian flags, at least a rally against the U.S. supporting Ukraine in trying to stand up against the Russian invasion of their country. This was a tiny event. It was small. It was a weird assemblage of Americans. There were Proud Boys there. There were some of the white supremacist groups you'd recognize from the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville a few years ago. Um, also represented prominently the remains of the bizarre Lyndon LaRouche cult. There were a lot of people with Russian flags, also the occasional flag of the f- former Soviet Union. Also, at least one person who guest hosts for Tucker Carlson on the Fox News Channel was there as a featured speaker. There were anti-vaccine conspiracy theorists, a lot of them. There were cryptocurrency promoters. It was a really weird group. It was a small rally and a weird one. Um, But that's what it looks like. That's the assemblage of short straws and split ends and loose change and loose electrons that's advocating in this country, that Russia's in the right in this war and America should be on Putin's side as he keeps invading other countries. I mean, no disrespect to the Americans who turned out as part of this small event this weekend, but it's it's not like they represent a big constituency that is arguing for this pro-Russia point of view. Well, it seems to me that Rage Against the War Machine has threatened a range of entrenched interests from self-proclaimed movement leaders coasting on the glory of bygone struggles to smug, centrist corporate media personalities who've lied Americans into every war that took place in my lifetime. And as a participant in this rally, who had the privilege of delivering its opening address, this fills me with pride. I was also proud to speak on the same stage as the last four presidential candidates to make opposition to the U.S. war state a central theme of their campaigns. Dennis Kucinich, Tulsi Gabbard, Ron Paul, and Jill Stein of the Green Party. It was also invigorating to join a march that spanned many blocks, from the Lincoln Memorial to the White House, alongside at least a thousand people, and maybe many more, who had traveled from as far as rural Vermont, California, Ohio, and Kodiak, Alaska, to rage against the war machine. So rather than accept the propagandistic characterizations of this rally, 
I thought it would be useful to offer listeners a chance to hear highlights from the speeches that truly set the tone for the day. As I mentioned, the speech that kicked off the rally was by me, Max Blumenthal, your host at Gray Zone Radio, and here it is. Thank you, Nick. We're not supposed to be here today. They don't want you to be here. I'm going to talk about why that is. I'm going to address some of the people who don't want us to be here. They do not want an anti-war rally in this town. I want to talk to you as a first as a son of Washington before I talk to you as a journalist. As someone who's known this city, who grew up in this city in the 1980s in this imperial capital. And I watched as my city was suddenly struck by a crack epidemic precisely at the same time that the CIA was seeking covert funding for its illegal wars in Latin America. And I watched as the streets of this city filled up with homeless Vietnam veterans, often still wearing their camouflage BDU, at the dawn of a homeless crisis that is now completely consuming our cities and which is apparent all around us. It was only recently, just a few years ago actually, as I walked through a Riverside Park by my home here in DC in Anacostia that I noticed a small memorial to the Bonus Army, commemorating another generation of US veterans who had been abandoned and betrayed by their government. Nearly 90 years ago, thousands of veterans of World War I gathered on Anacostia Flats and along the Potomac in Hoovervilles, makeshift camps at the dawn of the Great Depression to demand the bonuses they had been promised and denied by the US government. They had fought in a segregated army, but they now stood together and lived together as black men and white men. Some were supporters of communism. Some were supporters of the kind of America first style conservatism that was becoming in fashion at the time. And all were demonized by a government that saw this show of cultural and political unity as a threat to an empire in the making. Army Chief of Staff Douglas MacArthur warned that pacifism and its bedfellow communism are all around us as he and the future heroes of the US effort in World War II, Dwight Eisenhower and George Patton sent their forces against these betrayed veterans. And on July 28, 1932, MacArthur and the US Army attacked the Bonus Army and massacred them with tanks, cavalry, and machine guns following orders to kill the men they had fought beside below the US flag in the trenches of Europe. Now we stand here 90 years later in the same city where this massacre occurred, but countless disastrous wars later. And on the precipice of another economic crisis, we know that by coming here today, by coming together across artificial political boundaries and cultural lines imposed on us by our elites, we stand in the muddy boots of the Bonus Army as an imperial regime in deep decline trembles before us. And that's why it's, it's so tragic to me that this rally has come under attack, not only by the usual suspects in the corporate media, but by sectarian forces that parade as progressive and anti-war. They say that right and left should not come together that our petty differences must define and divide us, and that this rally is a danger to the movement. Well, let me speak now as a journalist who's met and lived with people on the other side of the guns of US empire. 
Let me speak about the Palestinians I met in the rubble of Gaza who'd seen their families wiped out by U.S.-made missiles and howitzers fired by Israel's apartheid army simply because they dared to resist their dispossession. Let me speak to you about the Syrian people I met in Damascus who'd seen their cities surrounded by NATO-backed jihadist militias and who now withstand Israeli bombs and sadistic U.S. sanctions. Let me talk to you about the people I met in Venezuela, Nicaragua, in Cuba, the troika of resistance who have bravely weathered the storm of CIA destabilization plots and economic blockades. The people I know in the Horn of Africa, from Eritrea to Addis Ababa, who have seen five million people displaced by a US-backed proxy war that few Americans even know took place. The Koreans I met, who've been separated from their own people and families by an imposed divide, who have not known peace since the genocidal US war waged on them. And the people I know in the republics of Donbass and Lugansk, who have suffered for nine years under the US-supplied bombs of the Ukrainian military and its sig-heiling neo-Nazi brigades, who celebrate and worship the Nazi collaborator Stepan Bandera, who murdered my own people in one pogrom after another. These people that I know and that I met on the other side of US empire, they don't care if you're right wing or left wing. They don't care if you're a camo-clad Trumper or a progressive social justice activist. They don't care if you're vaccinated and masked and boosted. They don't care if you are libertarian or communist. All they want you to do is be out here today to rage against this sick, satanic, neoconservative war machine. That's what they want. Our corporate media, which is just a megaphone for our oligarchic elite, is constantly telling us who our enemies are. They said our enemy was in Serbia when I was a teenager. Then they said our enemy was in Afghanistan. Then they said our enemy was in Iraq. And maybe our enemy was down the street in the local mosque. And we are here today to say that we know who our real enemy is. Our enemy is not in Russia. Our enemy is you, the corporate media, and the oligarchy that you speak for. Our enemy is the empire that's robbed us of our rights, that's looted our treasury for its insane imperial regime change wars, and that has hounded and jailed real journalists like Julian Assange. They say we need to fight them over there so we don't have to fight them here. We say that we will fight the neoconservatives over here before they kill millions more over there. Can you dig it? That's not our war. Whether in Ukraine or the war they're planning over the Straits of Taiwan, their war is not our war. Our war is for the hundreds of thousands of homeless people sleeping in the cold. Our war is to clean up our rivers. Our war is to fix our crumbling schools and roads. Our war is to fight for the minds of our brothers and sisters subjected to a nonstop tidal wave of corporate media propaganda. Our war starts here. Our war starts today. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Thank you. So that was me, Max Blumenthal speaking to the Rage Against the War Machine rally in Washington, D.C. 
this February 19th. Next up, we'll hear from Tulsi Gabbard, the U.S. Army veteran, former congresswoman from Hawaii, and presidential candidate who has run out of the Democratic Party for her vocal opposition to the U.S. dirty war on Syria, among many other unforgivable sins, at least in the eyes of the war state. Let's take a listen. Aloha. Early one morning on a Saturday, on a beautiful day like today, in January of 2018, over a million people all across the state of Hawaii woke to their cell phones buzzing and ringing, radio alerts blaring, with a message that read, ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii, seek immediate shelter, this is not a drill. I and so many others, I happened to be here that morning, I started calling my friends and calling my family, concerned for them and where they were. But just as you here might imagine, if we all got that alert at this moment, so too did people all across Hawaii start to ask themselves the question, where is their shelter? Where do I go? Where do I take my children to be safe, knowing that there is an inbound missile to Hawaii with a nuclear warhead and we have just minutes to live. We had college students at the University of Hawaii sprinting across campus trying to figure out where they could possibly go to get shelter. A father who lowered his little girl down a manhole, thinking that may be the only place she may be safe and telling her goodbye, I might not see you again. I heard after from a father who had one kid in town on the island of Oahu and another child on the other side of the island and himself in the middle trying to decide which of his children he might spend the last of his minutes with. An impossible decision for any parent to make. Countless others shared their stories of their panic cowering in the bathtub with their kids, trying to understand. They're telling us to seek immediate shelter. Where do we go? And experiencing that harsh reality that was as true for us there in Hawaii in 2018 as it is for us here today. There is no shelter. Our leaders failed us then, and they continue to fail us now. Those people who work in our nation's capital eagerly continue to escalate tensions, eagerly wage new cold wars, understanding that if there's a nuclear attack, yes, they will be okay in their bunkers where they literally have plans to be able to continue to wage wars from their bunkers without any consideration for the rest of us and the destruction and incineration that their wars will cause. This was ultimately the thing that caused me to run for president in 2020 because I saw where our leaders were taking us. I saw the dangers of where this new Cold War and nuclear arms race would eventually lead. Whether intentional or accidental, there is only one destination for such wars, and that is a nuclear holocaust. I made it clear 
then that this is a central issue of our time, the most important issue facing us in the 21st century, and that there was a clear choice in that election. We're either going to work towards peace, de-escalate tensions, move away from this new Cold War, or we will continue to race rapidly towards nuclear brink, toward a new Cold War with Russia, a new Cold War with China, and therefore racing towards nuclear war. Now, for those of you who remember that election, this issue was not important to the media. They refused to talk about it. They refused to raise the question in the debates. There was no other candidate willing to talk about this issue. It was not important to them then, and it's not important to them now. And so here we are, two short years later. What I warned about then is now our reality. This proxy war that we're fighting against Russia right now could turn at any moment into a direct conflict between the United States, NATO, and Russia, a country that has more nuclear weapons than any other in the world. Now, anyone with a little bit of common sense knows that a cold war can very quickly turn to a hot war. And that when you're waging a hot war against a nuclear-armed country, it's just a matter of time before it leads to the use of nuclear weapons at any moment. And here's the insanity of it all. We have talking heads on TV, we have politicians, we have very powerful people here in the United States and all around the world speaking with a straight face, well, you know, if we start World War III or when World War III starts, here's how we're going to fight and win. That if Putin decides to use tactical nuclear weapons, here's what we're going to do, as though such a war could ever be won. It cannot be won. World War III cannot be won. They're living in this archaic mindset of World War I and World War II and not facing the realities that we have today. There is no way to win a nuclear war. There is only one end, and that is a nuclear holocaust. So we're gathered here today because we know that it doesn't have to be this way. We know that there is a better way and that the task before us is urgent and necessary. We have people gathered here from all over the country, people who are gathered here from all ends of the political spectrum, and if we were to have a conversation, my guess is there may be other things we don't agree on, but the truth is that we could disagree about everything else, everything else. But the one thing that we do agree on that brings us together here today is that we value life. We want to live. We want our loved ones to live and thrive. You've been listening to former presidential candidate and ex-Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard warn of the increasing threat of nuclear annihilation at the Rage Against the War Machine rally in Washington, D.C. on February 19th. Comedian and broadcaster Jimmy Dore also took the mic to deliver a hilariously sardonic take on Imperial America's warped political and cultural priorities. Do you know we could end this war today through diplomacy, but our politicians want to enrich weapons manufacturers so they keep donating to them to the tune of $100 billion. Chris Hedges has called America a mafia state. Systems of governance that are seized by a tiny cabal become mafia states. 
the military-industrial complex and the Ukraine war represent an orgy of looting and corruption. America is the most powerful mafia that has ever existed. And the hitmen in that mafia have military pilot licenses. The difference, we will, <laughs> the difference between our government these days and the mafia in the 1940s, well, the mafia in the 1940s helped defeat the Nazis. <laughs> they used longshoremen and union leaders. It's a sad day when you can't even trust the mafia anymore. Do you know what America really needs? We need to take the money out of Ukraine and give it to everybody here so we can buy a balloon and a gun. That's the only way we can settle this. We all need to be floating around shooting each other down out of the sky. Better yet, the guns shoot vaccine syringes. Yeah, that's America. Eat boosters, you motherfuckers. America is so corrupt, even our war, our, our, our peace prize winners are war criminals. Barack Obama won a peace prize and he immediately ramped up the war in Afghanistan, starting bombing Libya, put a hit on Osama bin Laden, dropped 26,000 bombs in Syria. And that's the thing about those peace prizes. Nobody ever tries to win a second one. I have a list of things we could have bought with that hundred billion dollars instead of spend, sending it to Ukraine for killing people. With a hundred billion dollars, you know, they could say you could end homelessness for 20 to 40 billion dollars. We could have ended homelessness, then restart homelessness, then say we were only kidding, and then end it again. We, we can't end homelessness in America. We can't even fix the bridges that the homeless people live under. That's how corrupt we are. Every American for $100 billion could have had a home. But it's way more important that we make sure nobody in Ukraine has a home because now it's going to be turned into a crater. We could give every homeless person in America $160,000. Or if we want to help Americans but still show our support for Ukraine, we could buy every homeless person in the United States 7,000 Ukraine flag fleece blankets. <laughs> we could have used that $100 trillion. $100 billion would have provided universal health care to all the people in Algeria, Botswana, Morocco, Rwanda, the Philippines, Sri Lanka, Thailand, Romania, Croatia, Mexico, and Peru. Oh, wait, those countries already have universal health care. My bad. For the $100 billion, we could buy two FTX collapses. For $100 billion, we could buy every person on Earth a blue check mark on Twitter. Because shouldn't we all have an equal opportunity to be insufferable assholes? We could have spent that money on transportation, high-speed rail, but it was more important to fund the people who duct take somebody to a lamppost with their pants pulled down. We could cure cancer, but Big Pharma wouldn't be happy with that because they prefer six people instead of healthy ones. With the money we sent to Ukraine, we can hire an entirely separate new police force to protect us from the current police force. We could have funded everyone having free college instead of buying a Mount Kilimanjaro's worth of blow for Zelensky. 
Why are we sending that money to Nazis in Ukraine it, when we could be funding Nazis here in America struggling to buy eggs? <laughs> Isn't that just like our government to neglect all the Nazis we have here in America? <laughs> this is really a fight over nuclear war. Just across the road, there's a statue of Albert Einstein, and man, he looks depressed. He once said, if I could do it all over again, I'd be a plumber. You know why he said that? I thought it was because his toilet was always backed up. It was because the military-industrial complex used his science to kill people. They took Einstein's discovery and used it to melt the skin of Japanese civilians. Entire cities full of children and animals, extinguished in less than a minute. Generations poised, poisoned by radiation. Bombs today are much more powerful than those bombs we dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I know there's some people who wouldn't show up to this peace rally, this anti-war rally, because of some of the speakers they didn't like on this stage. And I get what they're saying. They're saying, hey, I want to help stop a nuclear war, but not with those people. <laughs> I get it, I'm the same way. My house caught on fire a couple of months ago, and when the firemen showed up, I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What's your views on Social Security and Medicare? I mean, I get this is a scary situation, my house is on fire, but first I need to get your stance on LGBTQ and gender-affirming surgery. I know my house is burning down, but are you vaxxed? I need to see proof of at least one booster. I need to know what your position is on gender-affirming surgery. What age should it start and what's your cutoff? And they're standing there looking at me like I'm fucking crazy. I guess you don't get to put out my fire then and my house is gonna burn down. I hope you're happy. So when people give me a litmus test and they ask me what kind of lefty am I, I always say I'm a Sandy Koufax lefty. Yeah, you're gonna say work, Okay. When it comes down to survival, which this is, there is no gift basket with a card thanking you for your participation. You don't get everything you attended to like in a hotel, but maybe you do get to survive. And that's the whole point. Save the nitpicking for Whole Foods. The people who won't be attending today had never any intentions of doing so. And if it wasn't one of the speakers, it would have been the weather. It would have been because they have more important things to do than survive. They'll be home watching CNN not cover this all day. The people who don't want to attend this rally because they don't like a speaker reminds me of what W.C. Fields said, that he won't drink water because fish fucking it. <laughs> you have to work with people you disagree with big time, even sometimes people you hate, because we need each other to survive. I'm reminded of the words of Frederick Douglass who said, I will join with anyone to do good, but with no one to do bad. Yeah. If Black Panthers 
can march hand in hand with the KKK down Las Vegas Boulevard to get welfare payments reinstated. We can join hands with the right wing, the libertarians, the left, the socialists, the communists, everybody to stop a nuclear war. And what's happening right here at this rally is what actually scares the hell out of the establishment. The, everybody from the left, everybody from the right, everybody from the middle coming together to realize that we have more in common than divides us and we share a common enemy. That enemy is the military industrial complex and the oligarchy, the same oligarchy that did a controlled demolition of our economy and then they want me to hate my neighbor for the pain I'm feeling because of that because they wouldn't take a vaccine that didn't work the way they said it did in the first fucking place. Well, I'm not gonna hate my neighbor. I'm gonna love my neighbor. because my neighbor is suffering under the same oligarchy that I'm suffering under, and he didn't cause it. The oligarchy did, and they don't want us to join together. And I have one message for the right and the left. If everybody on the right could just realize that not everybody on the left likes Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, we just want to end the wars and have health care that doesn't bankrupt us, that would go a long way. And if everybody on the left could just realize that not everybody on the right is a white supremacist Trumper gun nut, they're just fucking gun nuts. I love you. Love each other. Come together. I'll see you at the next anti-war rally. Stay together. You just heard comedian and broadcaster Jimmy Dore at the Rage Against the War Machine rally in Washington, D.C. Next, we'll hear from my very close colleague at the Gray Zone, Anya Parampil, who addressed the futility of what she called clubhouse politics and the importance of explaining the stakes of the Ukraine proxy war. So I'm honored to, to be here. I want to, as others have emphasized, how inspiring it is to see former presidential candidates, four of them, Dr. Jill Stein, Tulsi Gabbard, Ron Paul, and Dennis Kucinich. They each have their own flavor, but they all decided to show up today because they recognize that even though they be each come from something different, we don't always get the opportunity to come together and show what this country is actually about, which is what I see in front of me today. I'm also disappointed that there are some people who couldn't share the stage with me today. Is Scott Ritter in the audience? I want to give it up to Scott Ritter. He unfortunately couldn't speak today, but I just want to point out that more than anybody on this stage, Scott is actually someone who knows what it feels like to risk and lose everything. And he did it in order to stand up to the greatest humanitarian catastrophe so far this century, the Iraq War. So thank you, Scott. Unfortunately, even though she's back here with us, you know her and love her, I do too, Medea Benjamin, a legend of the anti-war movement. She couldn't be on stage speaking, and I don't hold that against Medea because I understand what she's up against, but what I do reject are the individuals and the groups who instead of asking to be a part of this or working with us, having a conversation, 
They invested all their time into attacking us, smearing us, in the most cynical way. And the reality is, building an anti-war movement is not about building anybody's personal vanity political project. It's not about building even necessarily individual parties. It's putting all of that together over the one umbrella of ending the war. We don't get, we don't have the luxury in the grassroots when we're fighting for something to say that uh, we want to play clubhouse politics and that we want to sit in the same houses, talk to the same people that we've been talking to for, in some cases, decades, other cases, years. And everybody thinks the same, everybody looks the same. That's not fun, that's not growth, and that's definitely not building a movement. So I actually think it's great that people can come together and discuss the areas where they disagree. And, you know, we can debate whether or not teenage girls should have to share locker rooms or compete in athletics against biological males another time. Because the reality is, if the people who run this country right now continue down this path, those other questions aren't even going to matter. They're not going to matter. We all know the stakes of this war. And our job in the grassroots is to understand the stakes of the war and communicate to the people the stakes of the war and the cost of the war. And I mean all the U.S. people, regardless of what they believe in on other issues, we are all affected by this, not just in terms of the taxpayer dollar cost. I mean, we should be communicating to people that the price of gas at the pump, the price of the food they're buying right now is all tied to this war. You think sanctioning Russia's oil means that Russia's not going to make money off their oil? No, it just means we're sanctioning ourselves, not able to buy that oil, and then suddenly the price of oil goes up. I wonder why that is. That was a portion of the speech by the Grey Zone's Anya Parampil to the Rage Against the War Machine rally in Washington, D.C., Dennis Kucinich, a former Cleveland mayor and U.S. congressman who ran for president on a strongly anti-war platform at the height of the Iraq War, also took the stage. Kucinich called on President Joe Biden to be held accountable for the covert terror attack that the U.S. waged on the Nord Stream pipelines, according to investigative journalist Seymour Hersh. In blowing up the Nord Stream pipeline, this government has deliberately circumvented Article I of the U.S. Constitution, the authority of Congress to make war. It has violated international criminal law by conspiring to commit acts of sabotage and violence on the high seas. It has used illegal and unconstitutional means to destroy the energy resources needed to protect millions of people in Europe during the winter, and then to profit from its illegal actions by selling energy to Europe at a four to six times markup. It has done so. It has done so blatantly, cynically, simultaneously taking credit for the destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline and then denying any role in it. 
I speak directly to those responsible. Thanks to a courageous journalist, Seymour Hirsch. Thanks to a courageous journalist, Seymour Hirsch. We know, we know what each of you did at the Nord Stream Pipeline, Mr. President, Mr. Secretary of State, Mr. National Security Advisor, and Madam Undersecretary of State. And we will not rest until you are held accountable by Congress, by the International Criminal Court, and by the American people at the next election for your reprehensible conduct, which has debased our Constitution, undermined the rule of law, in our name committed an act of war which threatened the peace of the world and the stability of our own nation. No amount of balloon militarism will distract us from your profoundly lawless, reckless conduct. Even intelligence professionals are at gas, are aghast at your White House's incompetence and have lost trust in your ability to defend America. Oh, yes, you want to hold Russia to account. That will ultimately be up to the Russian people. But it is up to we, the American people, to hold you to account. To affirm that we are a nation of laws, not of men or women, to hold those in high office to the highest of standards of national and international law. If we fail to do this, we have only ourselves to blame, while our government descends into depravity and tries to frog march us directly into nuclear war. Under the pretense of the pursuit of national security, our government's aggressive nature has alienated nations of the world and caused them to withdraw from commerce with long-term implications for the value of our dollar and our financial security. Our government has ceded our sovereignty in matters of commerce to the World Trade Organization to the detriment of American industry and American workers. It has ceded our national sovereignty in matters of peace to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which prefers military escalation to peace and is content, together with this administration, to use the good, courageous people of Ukraine as pawns in a vicious and deadly geopolitical chess game, which began well before the illegal Russian invasion. And it is now planning to do for the people of Taiwan what it has done for the people of Ukraine. Portraying China the aggressor while surrounding China with about 200 military bases. You've been listening to a portion of the speech by former Democratic presidential candidate Dennis Kucinich to the Rage Against the War Machine rally. Next up, we'll hear from journalist Wyatt Reed, who visited the pro-Russian side of eastern Ukraine and saw up close how the Ukrainian military has targeted civilians there for the past nine years, killing its own citizens with U.S.-made weapons. These are people 
who've been working to bring an end to endless wars since before I was born. And today we're here to make sure our kids don't have to do the same thing tomorrow. The thing about war is that in America, sometimes it can seem so abstract to us, like it could never hit home here. But it can, and it does. You know, I grew up in Southwest Virginia, down the river from the Radford Arsenal, where all the propellants used in American rockets and artillery shells are produced. And every month, they burn the explosive waste and they dump that sludge into the new river. So, when I grew up, we just got used to the fish in the river with tumors that were bigger than their heads. We got used to our dad's buddies dying in unexplained explosions. We got used to our friends getting thyroid cancer in their late 20s. And it wasn't until I saw this war in Ukraine up close and I was on the receiving end of these American shells that we are killing our own people at home to produce that it came full circle for me. Thank you. When I was asked to speak today, I knew immediately what I wanted to talk about, and that's the time I spent reporting from the Donbass recently. Because for close to a month, I got a chance to see and experience for myself exactly what those people have been going through, and not just since last February, but for nine whole years. Nearly 15,000 people in these autonomous regions were killed before Russia got directly involved in this war last February. Now, since then, hundreds more civilians have been killed there as the Zelensky regime stepped up its bombing of the Donetsk and Lugansk republics, intentionally targeting civilian areas and residential buildings in what I can only describe as state terrorism. I don't say this lightly, but it's the only conclusion I can draw after seeing the reality on the ground up close. I say that because within two hours of arriving in downtown Donetsk, I watched firsthand as my hotel was hit in an artillery strike a hundred yards directly in front of me with what I later found out was a NATO standard 155 millimeter shell launched by Ukrainian militants. I say it because I was able to get access to frontline towns and interview those who survived the occupation of their towns by the hyper-violent nationalists Groups with names like Azov, Adar, Right Sector, groups that were universally acknowledged as Nazis until last year. That's right. Nobody I spoke with who survived their reign of terror described them as liberators. Instead, they used words like fascists, killers, brutes. I say state terror because of Natalia, the 68-year-old babushka I met who was left crippled when the Ukrainian military bombed her apartment with a US-built HIMARS rocket. With no cell service, she told me she looks up at the faded photos of her children on the walls of her ruined apartment and tells them to look at what's become of her life. We asked her what she thought of Americans. Knowing we supplied the Ukrainian militants with those bombs, she said, they must be beasts. They must not be human. They must have no heart. And I wished so badly that I could tell her otherwise, but how could I? Well, I'm looking out at this crowd today, and now I think I can. 
Finally, Americans are uniting to say enough is enough. If you think lives like Natalia's matter too, if you think it's time to put an end to Ukrainian boys and men getting slaughtered after being conscripted at gunpoint, if you think it's time to stop sacrificing hundreds of thousands of lives to try to overthrow the Russian government and send a message to China that it's time to stop the endless escalations towards all-out nuclear war, then it's time to stand up. It's time to stand with the people of the Donbass. Stand with the other Ukrainians too. The Russian speakers in the East who are banned from mainstream media airwaves, who've been systematically silenced and erased since the US-backed coup in 2014. So spread the word. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your member of Congress, stop pouring gas on the fire. Stop sabotaging the peace deals. Not a single penny more for these war criminals. Let's have peace for the people of Donbass. It's time for negotiations, not nuclear weapons. Thank you. That was journalist Wyatt Reed at Rage Against the War Machine. Finally, we'll hear from Chris Hedges, veteran war correspondent, columnist, and author, who delivered an incendiary Jeremiad that ended with a bracing call for retributive justice against the warmongers. Idolatry is the primal sin from which all other sins derive. Idols tempt us to become God. They demand the sacrifice of others in the mad quest for wealth, fame, and power. But the idol always ends by requiring self-sacrifice, leaving us to perish on the blood-soaked altars we erected for others. For empires are not murdered. They commit suicide at the feet of the idols that entrance them. We are here today to denounce the unelected, unaccountable, high priests of empire who funnel the bodies of millions of victims along with trillions of dollars of our national wealth into the bowels of our own version of the Canaanite idol, Moloch. The political class, the media, the entertainment industry, the financiers and even religious institutions bay like wolves for the blood of Muslims or Russians or Chinese or whoever the idol has demonized as unworthy of life. There were no rational objectives in the wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Libya, and Somalia, and there are none in Ukraine. <clears throat> Permanent war and industrial slaughter are their own justification. Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, General Dynamics, Boeing, and Northrop Grumman earn billions of dollars in profits. The vast expenditures demanded by the Pentagon 
are sacrosanct, and the cabal of war-mongering pundits, diplomats, and technocrats who smugly dodge responsibility for the array of military disasters they orchestrate are protean, shifting adroitly with the political tides, moving from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party and then back again, mutating from cold warriors to neocons to liberal interventionists. Julian Benda called these courtiers to power the self-made barbarians of the intelligentsia. <clears throat> these pimps of war do not see the corpses of their victims. I did, including children, every lifeless body I stood over as a reporter in Guatemala, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Palestine, Iraq, Sudan, Yemen, Bosnia, and Kosovo, month after month, year after year, exposed their moral bankruptcy, intellectual dishonesty, sick bloodlust, and delusional fantasies. They are the puppets of the Pentagon, a state within a state, and the weapons manufacturers who lavishly fund their think tanks, project for the new American century, foreign policy initiative, American Enterprise Institute, Center for a, a New American Security, Institute for the Study of War, Atlantic Council, and Brookings Institute. <clears throat> like some mutant strain of an antibiotic resistant bacteria, they cannot be vanquished. It does not matter how wrong they are, how absurd their theories of global dominance, or how many times they lie or denigrate other cultures and societies as uncivilized, or how many they condemn to death. They are immovable props, parasites, vomited up in the dying days of empire, ready to sell us the next virtuous war against whoever they have decided is the new Hitler. The map changes, but the game is the same. Pity our prophets, those who wander the desolate landscape crying out in the darkness. Pity Julian Assange undergoing a slow motion execution in a high security prison in London. He committed the empire's fatal sin. He exposed its crimes, its machinery of death, its moral depravity. A society that prohibits the capacity to speak in truth extinguishes the capacity to live in justice. Some here today might like to think of themselves as radicals, maybe even revolutionaries, but what we are demanding on the political spectrum is in fact conservative. It is the restoration of the rule of law. It is simple and basic. It should not in a functioning 
republic be incendiary, but living in truth in a, in a despotic system, one the political philosopher Sheldon Wolin called inverted totalitarianism is an act of subversion. The architects of imperialism, the masters of war, the corporate controlled legislative, judicial, and executive branches of government and their obsequious mouthpieces in the media and academia are illegitimate. Say this simple truth and you are banished, as many of us have been, to the margins. Prove this truth, as Julian did, and you are crucified. All empires die in the same act of self-immolation. The tyranny that the Athenian Empire imposed on others, Thucydides noted in his history of the Peloponnesian War, it finally imposed on itself. To fight back, to reach out and help the weak, the oppressed, and the suffering. To save the planet from ecocide. To decry the domestic and international crimes of the ruling class. To demand justice. To live in truth. To smash the graven images is to bear the mark of Cain. Those in power must feel our wrath, which means acts of sustained, nonviolent, civil disobedience, social, and political disruption. <laughs> Organized power from below is the only power that can save us. Politics is a game of fear, and it is our duty to make those in power very, very afraid. The ruling oligarchy has locked us in its death grip. It cannot be reformed. It obscures and falsifies the truth. It is on a maniacal quest to increase its obscene wealth and unchecked power. It forces us to kneel before its false gods. And so, to quote the Queen of Hearts, metaphorically of course, I say, off with their heads. You've been listening to author and journalist Chris Hedges at the Rage Against the War Machine rally in Washington, D.C. on February 19th. And that's all for this week's edition of Gray Zone Radio on Pacifica. I've been your host, Max Blumenthal. You can find more of our reporting and video content at thegrayzone.com. That's G-R-A-Y-Z-O-N-E.com. This show was produced by Christopher Weaver.